Coming up, actor Alfred Molina joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Ileana Douglas, <laughs> welcome to the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. I'm here with Tamara Bird. Hi, everybody. Rainy uh, day here, perfectly yes. fitting for our <laughs> astonishing guest, oh. Alfred Molina. I'm so excited. So um, I. I noticed uh, the well, you know, I met Alfred um, many years ago. I was on the uh, ill fate. Everything I'm attached to is ill fated. <laughs> <laughs> Ill-fated or a cult classic, but uh, oh. I was, I was, I was on the both ill-fated and cult classic action, and he was doing a sitcom right next door. And Chris, I was blown away. And he's not only is he just an incredible actor, he's a really, really nice person. So I can't wait to talk to him. He's we've been having scones out in the green that room you, that you been... made. I know we're all we're all I'm I'm, I'm we're all a fluster. We're so excited yes, that he's here. Yes, yes, we are. So I wanted to, you know, I get um, questions from people on the street. Yes, and also um, from some of our Twitter fans who want to know what's really Ileana really like what mm. what are you really like and I tell them you're a hag of yes. course but um <clears throat> no just kidding I never said that all for show so not true um so I wanted to ask you some just sort of basic questions sure. about you and your life and we're not going to go for a super long time because we want to yes. our time for um Alfred Spend but but uh, but him. so okay so you grew up in the East Coast, in the East Coast, in Connecticut, right? The East Coast. I spent a lot of time in uh, New York and in Queens with my Italian relatives. I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, Melvin Douglas. So those are probably all the influences I, I, you know, pick, picked up. I was really into movies. I'm still into movies. I mean, I find that I'm, I'm relatively uh, the same. I don't, I don't think I've changed that much. I've tried to yeah. learn how to speak better, but. <laughs> that's about it so i'm a california girl spent yes my whole life in the west um and you now live here i love it i what, love california so tell, yeah tell me about that well, which I, you like lived, better which i used to what live do you in like new, about both places i lived in new york when i thought it was the best of new york which mm. was the 80s and i mm-hmm. went to school there and acting school and it was new york was great and then it became uh, pretty gentrified and i moved here around 1999 the first time i moved here was primarily for work. I didn't have the sure. best time. I moved back to the East Coast. But by that point, I was doing theater. I don't know, New York kind of left its lost its charm for me. So this time when I've been in California, I've really loved it. Although, you know, I don't go to the theater as much. I know, mm. you know, Alfred's doing a long day's journey in tonight. Yes. It is harder to go, you know, in New York, you walk five blocks right. and you see a play. So it is a little, little more challenging to see theater here. But... Um, I think the culture is great, and the art and the architecture is interesting, and it's the movie business, right? So, right, I feel very connected to the history of Hollywood. Yeah, so I love it. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Los Angeles is that art and and in all ways of expressing it are available here. I was at LACMA on Thursday, and then mm. saw Alfred's play on Friday, LACMA. and then oh, the L.A. County Museum of Art. Yeah, thanks, yeah. John. That's my job. I usually the one who says that, <laughs> um, and saw. 
an incredible exhibit on Diego Rivera and Pablo Picasso together that was announced that was hosted by the curator. Anyway, fascinating. fascinating. Since Alfred. Melina played Diego Thank Rio. you. That's exactly what I was thinking while I was singing Part it. of the Cubist movement. Mm-hmm. Very sort of similar to Picasso, I think, in, in some of his... Uh, and, of course, he had the torrid relationship with Frida Kahlo. Yes. Yeah. So there's... A, it's an incredible exhibit. You should, go, you should go see it. It's really amazing. I would like to. So to answer your question, yes, I am exactly the same. Uh, in fact, people, <laughs> people... When people do stop me on the street... Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I was, le- I was, you know, somebody tweeted me, we're, we're the Argentinian family that you stopped and you were in front of the dry cleaners and you took our picture and oh gave gosh. us directions to the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So, yes, that's me. I'm like everybody's sister, you know, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm nice to everyone. You, I'm it's thrilled true. to be in show business. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And, I mean, I loved the um, conversation that you had actually with Bobcat last week. You were talking oh, about how... People have this impression of you being quirky and, you know. Right. A, there, a hipper, the whole wardrobe thing. Yeah. Yes, there's a hipper. When I get cast as Ileana Douglas, <laughs> she's much, she's kind of hip and uh, her voice is a little lower and she's very <laughs> sardonic and sarcastic and always just very quippy. And that, that's not really me. I'm more, I'm more, as Bob Cat says, I'm like, I'm, I'm a total nerd. I'm home, like, looking at movie books. Reading my uh, Piper Laurie biography currently, or my Ida Lupino books, or you know, some I'm that's I'm home either I'm home. That's what I wrote in my at the end of my book. It was like she's probably watching a movie right, right. now. So that's me. I yes. watched uh, two films yesterday. I, you know, I have I'm, I'm you know I've got Criterion, and I'm I'm usually always watching a movie or the Food Channel mm-hmm. or House Hunters. Mm-hmm. Those, those are my. That's it. That's that's all I'm into. So you're pretty much stuck yes. being an actress now. I mean, you've been in it long enough that you yes. have to stick with that one. Yes. Um, I was thinking the same of Alfred uh, earlier this morning. So but incredible. if you ha- if you didn't have the job that you have, right? What are some other jobs you would like to have? I, do probably, I, I'm sure retail is one to, of them. You'd do like I get to go to back be to... in the movie business or outside the movie business? Uh, both. If I was outside the movie business, I did, when I worked for Ikea, I actually really loved design Mm. uh, and uh, that, you know, picking colors and what's the color of the season and things like that. So I think it would be something to do with design because I think you need to pick something that never bores you. Yeah. And so, you know, when I'm lying in bed and I can't sleep, I rearrange my room or I think about what color fabric I'll get for a, for a sofa or <laughs> things like that. It's an exciting life. It is. In, it is. Being in my brain. Eliana's either watching a movie or rearranging furniture. Incidentally, the color is pumpkin, if you're oh, curious. okay. I'm going from royal blue oh. to pumpkin. Okay. And I'm thinking pumpkin. And then I'm thinking of paint colors. Yes. Uh, you know, there's a great... What are you laughing about? This is, this is what girls <laughs> think about. It's true. <laughs> Girls have their own language. Yes, we do. While you guys are in the locker room with your Trump talk, we're we're talking <laughs> colors. 
<laughs> Benjamin Moore pigeon. Oh, I was actually looking at fabric for my sofas just yesterday. What about wall colors? I, it's very important to have a wall color where you look good behind oh, it. Oh, absolutely. And lighting that is flattering. Yeah. Some of my friends are interior designers, and we've talked extensively about lighting. That's harder. That's harder to do. But yeah. I do. I, I But I, I paint frequently. I frequently oh, good for you. change the colors. You know, the blue room is now yeah. the gray room. Oh, I so I like, and I move my movie posters around. I have a large uh, bunch of movie posters that I move around. So anyway, uh, wh- and within the movies, yes, what would you do as a job if you weren't an actor? Within the movies, I, of course, I'm going to go with uh, being a director. That's mm-hmm. I've always had that. You know, uh, and if I were not allowed to be a director, I would have to say again. I go into art design. Yeah. And and props. I love, from when I was a little kid, I would always arrange everything. And I wrote about this in the book. My grandfather had a, his, it, all of his awards were in his closet. So when he would go away, I'd take all the awards oh out gosh. and I would display them. And then I would take a picture. Artfully. And, and then, you know, I would arrange everything as if it was a little motif and then put everything back. And I, yeah. st- I still have... Those were some of the pictures that did not make the book. Oh. So many great pictures did not make, make the book. Make the second book, maybe. Hopefully, yes. I would, like, I would like that in my second book, the darker the darker version. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's, Dennis Hopper is it, after Is dark. it time for the wonderful let's Alfred bring Molina? Him in. Of course, I discovered Alfred Molina in uh, Prick Up Your Ears. Other people know him, of course, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, Chocolat, Spider-Man, Enchanted a- April, another movie he's incredible in, in education. I'm talking about you as you come in. Uh, you've been on television, Law & Order. I, I, I said, I, I noticed no ladies man is in your is in your bio. And you're going to be on TV again in The Feud with Ryan Murphy, uh, and you're currently in Long Day's Journey and Tonight. And it's a pleasure to to have you here. I look, I look as if I'm playing with myself, but I'm actually just roll, rolling up my <laughs> rolling, sleeves. Rolling up your sleeves. At least half of our audience is only listening, so oh, there okay. you, they don't even know. <laughs> Do you watch your films? Um, sometimes, yeah. I mean, eventually, oh, my God, you know. I forgot to mention Boogie Nights. I was doing all... How could I... Jesus, my apologies. <laughs> That's 20, right. 20, with you. 20 loud. No, because I was, right. no, most people have to read off a card, but with you, I was going by rote and then sighing after each. <laughs> so oh. true. I said, oh, an education is so <sighs> incredible. But yes, Boogie Nights and another in, in, uh, amazing uh, performance. And what audacity that you had. Uh, well, it was kind of, a lot of that really was. Thanks to a, a wonderful director, you know, um, um, Paul Thomas Anderson just gave us such wonderful freedom. Really, uh-huh. you know, he, he was very, um, very collaborative, very, very much into letting his actors make, you know, contributions both to how to play the scene, dialogue, and so on. And he mm-hmm. was very free and very relaxed. And uh, I was really impressed because I think. I think that was I think I'm right in saying that was his second movie. Yes. Hard Eight being the first one. And there was such assurance in the way he handled very complicated a a very complicated subject matter but also mm-hmm. um complicated scenes that, that that first sort of 8 minute sequence all one take on a steady cam you know yeah. coming down on the cherry pick and then into the into the club. I mean he uh, he told a story that he got a phone call from Steven Spielberg who asked him directly, how did you do that shot? Wow. And Paul said it was like 
getting called into the principal's office. <laughs> As if he had to somehow, like he'd broken some terrible rule. And, you know, sort of, and, and apparently uh, Stephen sort of, sort of said, well, no, I really want to know how you did it. It was, it was like, you know, because it was absolutely seamless. It's incredible. And uh, so full of information and, and, you know, visual kind of information about the story. You kind of, you, you got into these people like mm-hmm. so quickly. And so there was a real... I mean, and, and the job really came by... I, I heard... Now, I don't know how true this is, but mm-hmm. I heard that an actor had already been cast in the role and he dropped out for one reason or another, mm. very much at the last minute, mm-hmm. because I got a call from John Lyons, one of the producers, who I had known years before when he was a, a, still a casting director. Mm-hmm. And he just called up and said, we've got this part. It's going to be four days' work. You know, do you fancy... You know, and he said, and he kind of intimated that it was kind of like a favour. And I thought, yeah, I'm not working. I'm sure, yeah. You know, I said, what is it? And he said, well, uh, do you, you want to? I mean, do you want to talk to the director? I said, no, no. I, for you know, four days, it'll be fine. I, you know, I, I know. I, I saw Hard Eight. I loved it. You know, and and, and I knew, and I, and he gave me the the list of some of the actors involved. And I thought, this sounds like sounds great. And. Uh, and, and so anyway, uh, uh, PT called me and we had a very nice chat. And I said, so what's the part? And he basically said, well, it's a, it's, it's a coked up drug dealer on a shotgun rampage. <laughs> and I kind of went, um, have I ever played uh, a coked up drug dealer? No, no, I'll do it. OK, sure. And I turned up and it was four days of absolute joy. It really was. It, it, because there was no... I mean, I don't know how he dealt with it in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, his second movie. I'm sure for directors there's a lot of pressure, especially if your first movie is received so well and so kind of enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. And there may be a lot of pressure to, to really pull out the stops on movie number two. But he seemed so relaxed about the whole thing. And, you know, that kind of atmosphere starts at the top and works its way down. You know, if, right. if, if the boss is relaxed, then invariably the mood on the set is going to be good, you mm-hmm. know. And it was just fantastic. And play, just hanging out and playing with these wonderful actors, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, God rest his soul, and, and, and uh, Thomas Jane, you know, and Mark, Mark Wahlberg, and John C. Riley. I mean, and nobody was quite who they are now in right. terms of their status and their notoriety and their fame. You know, everybody was sort of, you know, they were, they were up and comers, you know. Mm. But you could tell there was this incredible level of excitement. And, and I think they all especially the actors who were much, much further into the shooting process than mm-hmm. I was. I, mean, I just turned up for four days. I mean, there were guys there who had been there, you know, Julianne Moore and yeah. Heather. I mean, they'd been there for weeks. Well, I was going to ask you, that's one of those things that can sometimes be challenging when you show up and you have a limited amount of time and and you don't know what the tone of the movie yeah. well, is. Well, I had the advantage. That, oh, excuse me. I had the I'm taking my watch off because it keeps on banging on the, on the tabletop. I'll take um, that. <laughs> I'll take the, that, sir. <laughs> I had the advantage of really absolutely knowing, not knowing what I was doing. You know, and and in a way, I'm, I'm not being facetious. Well, only a little bit, but in a way, that's kind of freeing because I, I really didn't have time to prep. I didn't have time to do any yeah. research. I mean, because the character's based on a real person, or yeah, loosely based on a real person. I had no time to kind of. All I did was learn uh, a Bobby's Girl, you right. know, the song that I had to kind of mime to, <laughs> and you know. Because PD says something like, "This you really have to know that song well because this is like this character's kind of signature tune. This is like his favorite." He said, "Think about what was the, your favorite tune when you were a teenager," 
And I remember saying, well, mine was, you know, what becomes of the broken hearted, you know, mm. Jimmy Ruffin. And, and, uh, and he went, well, like that, but it's Bobby's girl. So I spent literally three days just playing it over and over again. And, uh, but that was about it. So I turned up kind of a little bit free and loose, mm. you know, which I wouldn't normally do or indeed normally uh, kind of recommend. Right. To an actor, you know, I wouldn't say, oh, yeah, just go in there and just have no clue. You'll be fine. But this time it seemed to kind of work. And you're shooting at night. A lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how do you feel about night shoots? Because well, I, I find them to be very tough. I think keeping it's keeping your energy. Up. Yeah, I think I think night shoots as I'm getting older, I'm realizing it's very much a young person's game. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to love night when I was a young actor. I used to love there was nothing more romantic then turning up at like 11 o'clock at night and knowing you're going to be shooting, you're going to see the dawn coming up and everyone's going to kind of like have like dinner for breakfast. It's not going to be so cool. <laughs> you know, but when you're like, you know, in your 60s, you kind of start, you, know, you see, you see, you see N scenes three, four and two on a call sheet. You sort your heart sinks a little bit. You know? Yeah. And then I think about the guys who did uh, the, um, the, the Martin Scorsese movie. Um, the Nicolas Cage movie, yes, bring whole, out, bringing out the dead, or yeah, you know, forty the, nights. Yeah, forty nights. I mean, that must have just done them in. But if it's all night, then I go. Yeah, once then, you go in the night, yeah, you, you, yeah, you, you lose your marriage and, and your family <laughs> life, and you know, <laughs> everything else. Everything else in your, your life falls away. Tell, tell <laughs> everyone what splits are, because split splits are the worst. Oh yeah, well that's yeah, that's that's like when you're oh. kind of not quite a day shoot, not quite a night shoot. It's like a bit of each. Twilight. You know, so you sort of work. You start work at maybe noon, and then you finish say maybe. Two o'clock in the morning or something yeah. like that, and that's you know. Or my favorite is is the Fratter Day shoot. Oh, when that's television. Yeah, when you've got you know you know you've got the Sunday off, oh, so brutal. or the Saturday and the Sunday off, so yes. you kind of work Friday. You work right to to like two three in the morning, Saturday morning. And so when you're doing a part, I wrote about this in my book. I would go back to my trailer. I can't nap. I listen to music. That's my thing. And yeah. so I'm uh, by the time I'm done, I'm wrung out because I'm actually in my trailer. I can't eat. Uh, I because I'm I have to just listen to music and I dance. Uh, those are my two. Energy. Well, no wonder you're exhausted. No, <laughs> but I have because you're I, a fool to yourself, Ilya. Because I need to. Well, and then if it's something emotional, it's like you have to pump the dancing well. and crying. I cry a bit. I go okay. I, yeah. The emotion. Has to, see, I you yeah. know I. Can't. Well, it's interesting this thing about listening to music because I came rather late to that little sort of thing because. I never did that. I used to right. fi- I used to find it a little distracting somehow. So I would like just read the script or I'd read stuff to do with the story, you know, mm-hmm. like background material and things to keep myself, you know, and I, and it was only when I started I worked I, when I did um Frida with uh, mm-hmm. Salma Hayek. Salma used to listen to music to kind of get herself into kind of like an emotional space for a particular scene. Mm-hmm. And I never asked her what she was listening to. Um, but I could see she was. She'd be in the corner with her headphones on, and she told me it was music. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought, well, I, 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 I may be able to try this, you know. And I I started doing it. I started like finding kind of soundtracks or pieces mm-hmm. of music that might have some revel- relevance to you know the the, the, the job at hand. And right. I, I find now I find it incredibly helpful now. Yeah. I, I had to I wrote it in the in the book once that there was a bad we had a bad um camera shot 
and I had done it organically, and we had to redo it. And I and I said, "Uh oh, I'm going to need like ten minutes." And, mm-hmm. I, and I went and found a song that you yeah, know, yeah. That, that meant something. Well, to I guess me. it's because music is like you know, music's very evocative. It's very emotional. You know, we have an emotional response to it, mm-hmm. don't we? So if you find something that triggers yes. something that is going to be useful in you know to the to the job at hand, I mean, it makes complete sense. My, I'm also curious about your uh, outfit in the movie. Did you pick your the robe or because it, again? It's oh, so, oh, nights, it's so iconic. Like, did you when you go to the costume? Or do you like to be involved in? Choosing? Yeah, I, I, I kind of do. I mean, sometimes it's not. It's not always. Again, it's a very vulnerable for for those people who don't know. I find that again. That's when I get scared. Like you get the part, and there's a lot of exhilaration, and then I always feel a little scared. Like they have a rack of. Clothes clothes yeah and i get nervous like yeah. i want to i, I have mean. my own ideas and i don't yeah well i i i tend to le- i tend to let myself go into the hands of the designers you know i i i, I try unless it's something that's really <laughs> ugly or just it's so clearly not the character you know right. sort of we thought we'd have you in canary yellow fred for the uh, for the funeral scene <laughs> I, I you know if it's something really you kind of go mm, i don't think so but Usually, I, I tend to let let because I think well they probably know better than me. You mm-hmm. know, I mean if it feels right and if it looks okay, then I'm, you know, I, I don't come in with any strong ideas about my character wouldn't wear this or my, you know, yeah. And uh, but but I think you know it's very unless you're doing I mean like unless you're wearing a costume that's really like a costume like you know like like the stuff I had to wear when I was doing like say for instance Spider-Man 2 right which isn't really clothing it's kind of it, it's 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 evoking all kinds of other imagery and storytelling mm-hmm. then you're completely in the hands of of the designer you know sort of uh, you know, I, I could always, I, I always imagine actors playing superheroes, kind of saying, you know, does this cape make my ass look fat? You know, do these tights, these tights work? You know, I always think these aren't the questions you'll be asking. You know. So let's go back in time. My, yes. we always, uh, my favorite question, of course, what was the first movie that you saw? Now I read something. I don't know if that is the same movie, but I read uh, that it may it may have been Spartacus. Well, Spartacus was the first movie that I saw where I consciously remember thinking, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to, this is what, and, and I, I think I must have seen movies before that. In mm-hmm. fact, I know I did. But um, that was the first time, and I, and I don't know whether, and I don't think it's because I wanted, suddenly wanted to be Kirk Douglas. It wasn't mm-hmm. that. It was something about, I think, I mean, I was nine years old, so I couldn't have been thinking on any very sophisticated level about the craft of acting or the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, whatever was involved. But it was something about that story and, and, and the way they looked and the way they behaved. I, I suddenly thought maybe, yes, I could maybe do that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but, it, but it wasn't until much later that I realised that's what happened. I mean, I, th- I think b- immediately after seeing it, I think it just became just one of my favourite movies. But I, I remember being asked in, in an interview once about, you know, what is, you know, a, a list. I was given a list of films, you know, mm-hmm. to, just to kind of make a quick comment about. And Spartacus came up and I kind of went, ah, yeah, that was when I kind of went, oh, yeah. That's when the light went on in my head, you know. 
Well, it's an old-fashioned, you know, pot boiler. Oh, it's yeah. got these great characters. Uh, have you ever been? Have you? I know recently when they did the re-release of it, getting to see it on the big screen. Yeah, that was fantastic. With with, with the like, with all the with all the cut scenes put back in. Oh you my know, god! That what was... do you prefer, oysters or is it oysters or uh, snails? Snails. Yeah, I like them both. <laughs> <laughs> you know what kind of steals the movie too is uh, Peter Ustinov. Are you a Peter mm. Ustinov fan? Huge fan. He he's been sort of forgotten. And uh, whenever I'd see him in a movie, boy, he yeah. was. Oh, he's he's a one. He was a wonderful, wonderful actor. And oddly enough, um, uh, during uh, the filming of Prince of Persia, mm-hmm. we start. We we had long, long chunks of time just sitting around talking and you mm-hmm. know, sort of waiting for things to get set up and stuff. And we started playing this game where we would imagine the movie Prince of Persia being made ten. 20, 30, 40 years earlier, and we would cast it with who we thought would be playing those parts in that era. Yeah. And I remember when, uh, uh, when, we said, when we said, well, if this was like the late 50s, who would be, you know, and everybody, when it came to who would be playing my part, everybody kind of went, Peter Ustinov. <laughs> <laughs> because he's, he, because he was a kind of, Roguish villain. He was like a yeah. co- co- comedic villain, right? And of course, Peter Ustinov. Kind of that was his stock in trade. That was his. That was he. That's, he was so brilliant at those kind of slightly sleazy, slightly comical, but slightly dangerous characters. Yeah, you know? always had something going. Yeah, you know, I loved him. I loved him. Now, speaking of English cinema. When you were growing up, what kind of movies were you seeing? Were you seeing like Ealing's comedies? Were you were you into the Angry Young Man? Uh, not, not not really. I I was uh, I was into American movies. I was I I was I've always been a big Western fan. I love uh-huh. westerns. I love war movies. All the things that you know, young boys you could yeah. imagine young boys getting into. And so much of the product that we saw in that. I mean, I was born in 1953, so I started probably going to movies on a regular basis by. 1961, 62, mm-hmm. and certainly, but maybe before that with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember all the big movies were all American movies, you know, the, the westerns and, and the cop show, the cop movies and the right. gangster movies, and I loved them all. And, and in fact, I can remember, plus the stuff that we saw on TV, you know, all the, mm-hmm. kind of, all the big sort of American series, I can remember playing in the street with my friends and we would act out scenes we would play cops and robbers and you know cowboys and indians and stuff like that and we would do it with american accents <laughs> we, we'd, we'd be running around kind of going head him off at the pass you know <laughs> oh you got me copper you know and it was all it was all like dialogue that we were picking up from films and yeah. television and so that was my that was you know i was i i was i loved those i any kind of western i would go and see you know i, I you know it's it's um I remember telling somebody once years ago, I'd rather go and see three bad westerns than a really good Chekhov play. Really? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, I love Chekhov. Don't get me wrong. But the, you know, the thing is, you know, it, it was that was the that was the stuff that kind of excited me, and and, mm-hmm. and I think it was something to do with the, with the the language and the accents, and there's always been something in terms of language. There's mm. always been something incredibly muscular about the way. American English is used in films. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something kind of taut and sinewy about it, and and you know, and and incredibly economical. So there's a sort of, I don't know, there's there's something about it that's very kind of, you know, it, it's 
there's a tight a tautness to it, mm-hmm. which I love. I see what you mean because if you take a like a British war movie, you know, like Life and Times of Colonel Blim, everybody's British, but an American war movie. There's the Italian, yeah. the Irish guy, the tough. Yeah, they they yeah. used ethnic. Well, because the Brits always assume that they won World War II all on their own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they didn't have any G.I. Joes around? The, yeah, there were lots of G.I. Joes. Yeah, was that, what, what they used to say, uh, well, oh, the, the, the Brits used to talk, they had this joke about American, the American G.I.s in England during the war. They used to say it was uh, um, oversexed, overpaid, and over here. Oh. <laughs> and it, but there's a good reason for that because the American GIs when they came over what really pissed off the Brits was that mm. they were much much better looking they had great teeth <laughs> their uniforms really looked good they looked great in those uniforms they fit them and they smelled good uh-huh. and they had and more importantly they had money that was the thing uh, a, a regular American serviceman mm-hmm. was actually, in terms of when you, you know, when you made the equivalency in pay, the yeah. average American serviceman in World War Two was actually earning the same amount of money that, that a British officer was making. Wow! wow. So they had money. You yeah. know, that's why they were so popular. I mean, you know, it was uh, they were, so the, the Brits were like really. <laughs> A little bit ticked off, you know. They now, turn up late and then they get all the credit. You know, there's now, all that going on. One of the quotes I read about you, you said, I'll do anything, I'm a bit of a slut that way. Yeah. And now, is that because you come from a kind of a working class background? Maybe. Well, yeah, I, I guess. Although, or is it you just know, fun to work? Uh, well, I think all the, all, all the above. Christopher Walken, I once asked Christopher Walken about early on, I was doing a movie and like, what do you do when you turn apart? He goes, oh, I take everything I'm offered. Yeah, yeah. And it changed my life. I was like... Yeah, what yeah, the hell? I've, I've basically no done that. No, there's no... I've basically done that. My, my only criteria... <laughs> I remember when I was at drama school, for instance, all my contemporaries were talking about... Whether, whether they were you know, making plans and, you know, little, we, we all had fantasies and dreams about what we wanted to do, obviously. And, uh, you know, people would be saying things like, well, by the time I'm 30, I want, I want to have played Hamlet before I'm 30. Or, I, you know, by the time I'm 40, I want, I want to have played all the clowns in Shakespeare. <laughs> or, you know, by the time I'm, you know, and, I'd, and I would go along with all that and kind of nod and kind of think, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But in my heart, in my head, I was thinking, I, I just want to work. I just, mm-hmm. I just, I want to, I want to do everything. And, and I did, I never, and I, I, I'm still a little bit, you know, uh, like that. I mean, I, I, I love working, mm-hmm. but I just remember my only driving, and I think because maybe because my parents kind of had long stints of like not working and being out of work and all that stuff. Particularly after my parents divorced, you know, my mother struggled. I, I lived with my mum, and she, you know, you know, she struggled. I mean, mm-hmm. She struggled to, to to make ends meet, and wanting to be an actor seemed like such a selfish luxury, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and and so I I think. Partly to mitigate that, I I just took everything and made sure that I was just always working. So when a job finished, you know, you know, I, I remember going from doing playing doing oddly enough a Chekhov play in a very respectable, very reputable regional theatre in the UK, and then my next job two days later was doing this kind of really crappy commercial for some chamois leather product, <laughs> you know, and, and everyone's kind of going, but you just did, you know, I said, yeah, I know, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting paid. So was she able to see you succeed? Yeah, she so did. She, well, she saw, she, she, she saw, uh, she died uh, quite young, my mum. My mum died uh, just, just before my 30th birthday, uh, like 19, uh, 1983. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
she but she saw she saw Raiders. Mm-hmm. She saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, by then she'd retired and she was living in Italy. She'd gone back to Italy to mm-hmm. the village where she was born. And um she uh she was incredibly supportive. I mean mm-hmm. she was really supportive and and she she used to come to when I was doing plays, she would come Every she would always come every opening night, and she always wore the same outfit. She wore this kind of fake. She had this fake fur coat, <laughs> which she would wear. She was very proud of it, which she would wear over this kind of twin set, um, like a skirt with a sort of you know um, cardigan and sweater thing, and these pearls. That was like her going out outfit, and she would always get a seat in the front row. And regardless of what she saw, regardless, I mean, she she saw some rubbish. She would come backstage afterwards and she would always say the same thing. She'd always say, Alfredo, that's the best thing I ever see you do. Every time. Until I did a play where I was basically playing one of three guys who were gang raping a young girl. And the play opens with us dragging her. She's in a car naked Mm -hmm. because she's been making out with her boyfriend. We are we we arrived. This is at the Royal Shakespeare Company, by the way. So I'm not I'm not talking about some you know some nonsense you know downtown somewhere. We drag her out of the car, and there's this very graphic gang rape, which mm-hmm. opens the play, which we played to the sound of seats flipping up. You know, as people walked out in droves. My mother came to see it, and I'm thinking she's gone. She's gonna, she's going to kill me. She's going to hate me. I take her out for a drink after the show. We're sitting in the bar next door to the theatre. I'm introducing her to a couple of the other actors. and She doesn't say anything. We're talking about everything except the play. But she had to find something positive to say. So as we're leaving, and I called a taxi, I get her into a cab to take her home. And as she's getting into the cab, she says, Alfredo, the girl that you rape in the play, beautiful legs. <laughs> <laughs> she had to find something positive to say. You know, that's yeah. So she saw, yeah, she saw some stuff. So I didn't realize. So your your mom had a thick Italian. I mean, I yeah, knew. My I mom know was that Italian, your background my father was, was Spanish. Yeah, but uh, but she had a thick uh, accent. Yeah, yeah. They, they, my parents never lost. They they both had a really innate gift for languages, and mm-hmm. they they t- they learned each other's language. They learned English. They both spoke French, just by coincidence, mm-hmm. and they, they so they they all had they they could read, write, and speak fluently in four languages. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mother left school at fifteen. My father left school at fourteen. It was just a gift that they had, and and they used it. You know, mm-hmm. they, they they you know they both worked in the catering business in London. And although they spoke English very well, they both they never lost their accents. Mm-hmm. And in fact, my father, who had a very thick Spanish accent, he learned English through proverbs and colloquialisms. He kind of would would pick them up and and memorize them. Mm-hmm. So he kind of learned English. Like I, I always used to describe it as kind of learning English through the back via the back door. So he would he would his 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 English was peppered with sort of you know, well you know what they say: many cooks may lie work. <laughs> Or, you know, <laughs> it's raining cats and dogs. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> yes. yes, my grandmother... You bet your bottom dollar. My, my grandmother would always... My grandmother was Italian, too, and she'd always say, Ooh, watch you when you fall. 
Like, not, no, it's the, she would always like get get it slightly wrong. Yeah, right. She'd say, "Ah, oh, your father, he he's got his good faults." <laughs> <laughs> now that's one of the things I want. I, I love mean, that. the one of the things I love about watching you in films is that there's such a humanness and a vulnerability, even when you're playing bad guys. There's always something. You know, underneath that I'm very, and I mentioned the movie again, uh, an education. I just, uh, the movie is a killer for me. But there's, you know, is that something that bleeds through from you? Are you aware of that? Or I, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I, 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 I think I'm glad if that's there, then I'm, I'm delighted. But um, I'm also a little bit worried because whenever I played bad guys, I try and be really bad. But maybe. <laughs> Maybe I'm not succeeding. <laughs> I, but oh, it's a likability. He's, he's trying to be bad, bless him. Oh, <laughs> oh, bless oh, his oh, no, I, the other he night, can't stop. He can't stop that sweet. Oh, look, look, look. Oh, look, he's getting angry. Look. <laughs> but see, to me, that's... I was watching the other night, talking about Westerns, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, oh, you know, yeah. Lee Marvin. I One mean, you know, even John Ford was afraid of Lee Marvin. <laughs> he, that's, I was reading about it. He was like, no, I just, I don't give him many directions. <laughs> he's like he gives me but you know but you're playing a villain is you know it's very fun and yeah well i i think there's i i i always think if i'm i'm glad i'm glad that i mean I'm, you know, without being sort of silly about it i'm i'm glad that that, that is coming i'm through. on your side i appreciate that because but, i think that's it's human isn't it i mean it's sort of i a, see yeah. your point of view which is very i think yeah. is important sometimes when someone is playing yeah. a villain and not just the vulnerable parts but i love a movie where i'm conflicted i don't want to mm. feel as if you know yeah. uh, there's a one but there also there's a wonderful freedom when you're playing the villain you know um <laughs> i mean apart i mean bob hoskins the the late great bob hoskins once said that he loved he he was asked in an interview why how come he was turning up in so many movies playing kind of like little cameo roles where mm-hmm. he was playing like kind of like a bad guy the, the, the gangster or the kind of the, the villain and he said that he loved he said he says you work half the amount of time of the leading man they treat you like the crown jewels and if the movie sucks nobody blames you <laughs> <laughs> that's true and the thing is if you're in a, if you're playing the villain and you're in a bad and the movie happens to be a bad one no one yeah. no one points at the villain no one kind of goes ah oh, the villain screwed that up the villain pl- was ruined it it's true and there's a, and i think that's because there's a kind of freedom in playing the bad guy you can be you know you can you can legitimately chew a bit of scenery mm-hmm. if you choose to right and audiences love it i mean it's 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 a kind of release valve mm-hmm. from the any kind of like moral imperative that the leading right. characters are, are, are following the uh, the villain is often uh, a, a release from that, a, 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 the antithesis of mm-hmm. that. So you can have a you can have a lot of fun, and I love. I mean, aren't you worried about being typecast as the villain? No, never. Never. I, I've never seen. You know, what's interesting is I don't see you getting typecast as the villain because again, you've played. It's not like you've consistently played villains. You played varied other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been lucky. I mean, it's it's uh, that that see that's one of the advantages of the philosophy of just taking everything you're offered, you know. Because uh, you look back on. I mean, I've been I've been acting what for nearly you know over forty years now, and I, wow. I look I look back on movies, and there's no discernible pattern. I, I never had a game plan. It's just like this crazy quilt of stuff. Uh-huh. And I think that's one of the advantages of always saying yes is that you end up after after a while you end up. And you think, wow, yeah, I did that and I did that. And, and mm. I think all of it eventually feeds into a sense of understanding, a sense of 
self-knowledge, a sense of feeling that you you kind of maybe might be close to knowing what you're doing. You know? Do you think that I, I, I want to go back now to, you know, the first time I saw you in a movie, which was Prick Up Your Ears and getting involved to work with somebody. It's so funny to track you from Prick Up Your Ears to Spider-Man. I mean, <laughs> who knew? Because when I saw you in that film, I would have predicted, yeah, that he's going to play bad guys and scare, you know, psychos and and uh, and something like that. But getting involved in a movie like that, that was so dark. Um, mm. And how did that come about working with Stephen Frears? Well, it, it who came, just came off of My Beautiful Laundrette. That's right. That's right. And and, and it was, you know, and, and also if you remember in the mid 80s, certainly in the UK, and I suspect here too, stories with openly gay characters mm-hmm. wasn't really the norm. You no, know, I mean, Beautiful Laundrette really kind of broke some ceilings, right. broke through some ceilings. And then to follow up with something like Prick Up Your Ears, although it was a true story mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 the, and the, the people involved were, had, had, had huge notoriety at the time. You know, mm-hmm. Joe Orton was a very successful, highly visible playwright and his lover, Ken Halliwell, w- w- became notorious, you know, mm-hmm. after the, both their deaths. Um, so... It, but it wasn't the kind of it wasn't the sort of the norm to see these kind of stories, and the uh, there was a, originally the very first sort of manifestation of prick up your ears. It was going to be, I think, it was going to be, I think Ian McKellen was in the frame to play Ken Halliwell, mm. and then I think the money fell through, something or else happened. And then Stephen had to kind of start again. Mm-hmm. And then by then, Ian, I think, had moved on to something else. And then it was Gary and I were in mm-hmm. the frame. And so it was a very, very exciting prospect. You know, I'd never played a part that big in a movie before. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like my first proper kind of leading role. And uh, I was terribly excited. It was a wonderful script. Alan Bennett's script was just fantastic. I knew a little bit about the Joe Orton, Ken Halliwell um, sort of scandal. Uh, and it it just felt... And I and also I'd known Gary before because Gary and I had worked in the theatre before. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a kind of, you know, we, we were all sort of in this mix of, you know, everyone was like doing something new for the first time. And it was just the most wonderful, wonderful experience from that point of view. And, and I, I always, uh, I, I, I always sort of thank Stephen, you know, uh, publicly as well, because it, it was he was encouraged not to cast me um, uh, for many of the reasons that uh, you know he's, he's too big, he's too he, he's too ethnic looking, all those kind of things, mm-hmm. and he just said, "Yeah, but you know, I think I think it's I think it's going to work." You know, and so he was very he was very loyal in that regard. You know, and, I, and I've always been very grateful to him for that. Did you just give a, a, an amazing audition, or did you meet him? Or? No, what what happened was I I went to his apartment, I went to his house. Mm-hmm. Alan Bennett was there. And we just read a few scenes. And then he kind of very casually said something like, well, would you like to do it? And I, trying to match his casualness, <laughs> kind of went, yes. 
I remember my my voice went up a went up an octave. I was trying to be really cool. We were in his kitchen in his rather nice sort of rather shambolic kind of bohemian house in Notting yeah. Hill, and and uh, you know scrub pine tables and copies of Architectural Digest all over the place. And I was feeling terribly kind of yeah, hey, I'm 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 part of this now, you know. Yeah. I, but I tried to be very cool, but I wasn't. I was you know terribly excited. So once you get the part, are you at all concerned? And you said you knew Gary before. Do you, do you get concerned at all? Like, okay, now I'm going to have to make out with Gary. No, I didn't. No, that, that, in fact, that was the last thing I was worried about, <laughs> funnily enough. You know, because, you know, Gary, you know, I'm an enthusiastic heterosexual man, but Gary's a very attractive guy. Uh, so I know I had no problem with that. But I say what we did do, what was interesting, is we both had a similar idea, which we did together. Yeah. We, we spent about, ooh, about nearly a month together mm-hmm. just hanging out nearly every day mm-hmm. um, and just working on a timeline for our characters from when they first met, when right. they were at drama school in the 50s to when they, you know, mm-hmm. to, to the very end of the, of the movie. Mm-hmm. And all the events in the script, we tried to tie to actual moments in their real lives. And right. Then, and then we, we started doing some detective work. We, you know, we started talking to people who knew them, mm-hmm. uh, tracking down people who were in their Drama, who were in their class at drama school and so on and so forth, just doing kind of the basic kind of research that you would do. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was like a kind of like a bonding process. You know, Gary and I got to know each other very well during that. So when the scenes came to where we had to be really kind of emotionally vulnerable and open to each other, it was kind of easy because mm-hmm. we were already kind of chums, you know. And, and so it kind of, it became... Uh, it became like a natural development. You know, it, 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 it wasn't awkward in any way. And how did you feel about Hallowell? Did you feel that he was somebody um, that was a tag-along or that, or that he really was, you know, that he really had made this great sacrifice for Orton? Well, I, th- I, think, there, I think there's, like, like in any other kind of human relationship, there was a huge complexity, mm-hmm. which is that they were both, in a sense good and bad for each other. Mm-hmm. Ken were, Ken had aspirations to be a writer, to be an artist, which he felt at some level had been thwarted by Joe's huge success. Mm-hmm. He also felt that Joe hadn't ever given him the right amount of acknowledgement mm-hmm. in terms of his contribution. Joe as well felt as his success grew, felt that Ken was becoming a bit of a hindrance. He was socially awkward. He was difficult. He was a snob. He 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 was a, a bit of a poser. Mm-hmm. Ken was was socially a bit of was become became increasingly a, a, a liability. Plus the fact that Joe was also becoming increasingly uh, sort of. Uh, um, uh, Sort of unfaithful and 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 right. and, and, and uh, was kind of playing away from home a lot. Mm-hmm. Ken was sexually and and emotionally kind of very very trapped and and sort of uh, thwarted in himself. So there was all these factors going on. Plus, they were living in this really weird situation in this tiny little room. You know, there was a kind of the the, the relationship was clearly sort of they were enabling each other in the worst possible way. Right. And then of course afterwards, after you know, after Ken killed Joe and then killed himself, and ironically apparently, so it go the story goes that uh, after Ken smashed in Joe's head and then started taking all the nembutals, he actually died first. Oh. 
um, you know, le- uh, medically oh, speaking. Right. He wow. was he was apparently dead before Joe was. Um, and there's a wonderful moment in the film when after he's killed him, Ken has this little speech where he says, "I, I should have been the writer. I, you know, I, I, I came from a broken home. I'm homosexual. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm socially inept." It's practically a blueprint to be an artist, something like that, <laughs> uh, and and I really felt for the guy. I, mm-hmm. I my I wasn't exactly on his side in the sense that oh you know he was hard done by, but I could I thought I I felt like I could mm-hmm. quite I could understand where he was at, and also given the the period that when it was happening, if this relationship had been happening now, both of them could have would have got a lot of help. Right. They, you know, I think we would have, we would, people would have recognized the signs and, and stepped into maybe. Well, this is a time where homosexuality is, it's still illegal. It was only, well, it was only, it was only just legalized. I mean, uh, 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 um, homosexuality was, was decriminalized in 1967. So it was kind of, they were just, Mm -hmm. you know, but even, but, but it was years before men could, you know, have any kind of public displays of affection or even yeah. hold hands, you know. I mean, and and I've I know a lot of uh, I have friends who are my age who were young gay men back then, back in mm-hmm. the '60s and '70s, where even though the law had changed, it, you, there's no way they and now they they are themselves. They, they still can't hold hands, you know. These are these are men who have been together forty years. You know, because of the, the period that they grew up in. Yeah. You know what's something interesting about the film, and I, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but the movie came out when I was in acting school. And Where so did you go to school? I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse oh, cool. in uh, New York. And all the, you know, a lot of the actors see, found the film very seductive. I know it's, you know, it's, everybody got their book, their Joe Orton book, and it was, it, it also created that kind of, it's sexy to be gay and self-destructive and, you know, go out at night, and it, mm-hmm. it brought out, it brought out some qualities. Did you ever find that in people seeing the movie? Or I, I, just well, a, a lot of, a lot of, a, a lot of people, I've spoken to people who've told me things like, that when they were young, when they saw the movie in their teens, where they weren't sure whether they were gay or not, and when, or or, they, or they'll say, I was just realizing that I was gay, and I saw the movie, and it gave me such hope and such, it helped me understand. And those stories are wonderful when you hear that, because if you know if a movie can do that, then yeah. that's just fantastic. I mean, I mean, a generation before that, when I was growing up, you know. Uh, it was very. I, I would watch movies that were all about p- young people being depressed <laughs> and neurotic, and I used to think that was like so cool. Like you know, I wanted to be Francois Hardy's boyfriend, you know, because like you know, they all walked around with the long hair and the, you know, singing sad songs and wearing black polo necks and you know, sort of <laughs> being very kind of you know depressed about everything. And you know, I used to think that was so cool. Did you want to be uh, well? Like, if you were going to be a British actor, who would you want to be when you were a kid? Oh, when I was a kid, well, like, did you want to be Albert Finney or did actually, you want? No, I tell you, I, I mean, I know it sounds weird. Who I wanted to be was an American actor. Was I wanted to be Anthony Quinn? You are, you are Anthony I, Quinn. I, you are the, uh, you are I every lo- ethnicity. I loved him. I loved <laughs> so him. Funny. He, he was like, he, he, and I think it's. I mean, you know, he was Mexican American. He played Italians. Uh, yeah, and and I, you know, and I, I, it was just something about the way he looked, the way he mm. sounded. I, I, I related to him in a way that. I hadn't related to British actors 
in, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I admired British actors. I, mm-hmm. I would look at them and I would see wonderful performances and think, oh, wow, yeah, I'd love that. But the actors that really got me excited, that really made me, that kind of convinced me that I did really want to be an actor, mm-hmm. were invariably American actors. Well, and I, it's to do with what we saw in, talking earlier about yeah. you know, the tautness of the language, the kind of the, the energy, that just that energy that American actors seem to have that just completely thrilled me. And again, well, that being in contact with maybe their emotions or sort of actor studio yeah, or the method. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, there used to be this, there used to be this sort of generalization, it's a huge generalization, but there's a certain amount of truth in it, that, that when it comes, when, when, you know, American actors have a way of going from naught to 60. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, have a, they can draw <laughs> a direct line between here and whatever emotional state they need to get to. Yes, British actors like to take the scenic route. <laughs> you know, they like to kind of like meander, go, oh, there's an interesting little alley. Well, let's explore that for a bit. Oh, no, right. it's not going to work. Oh, look, there's a, well, let's go around the roundabout. Let's go around the roundabout again, just in case. Yeah. You know, and so there's a, and, and they arrive at the same spot. And that's not uh, that's not that you know, and, and the quality of the work is just as good, just as mm. important. But it's a different approach, and uh, but, but it was that naught to sixty that I kind of used to kind of make me go, oh my god, that's that's what I want to do. Yeah, you know? but it could be it could be fun, you know, to to yeah. to let it to let it all out. So then after you did uh, prick up your ears, I mean, was it? Did you feel like you were an overnight success? Because uh, <laughs> not at all, not at all. Uh, after after prick up your ears, I went and did a, the first job immediately after prick up your ears was a was a, a, a TV movie mm-hmm. for the BBC called Blat, which is a, a, a Russian word for con or, mm-hmm. or fraud, and it was a, a kind of comedy drama about mm-hmm. a, a Russian guy who gets sprung from prison in in Russia by the Russian government to kind of pull off a scam in London. And uh, it's like a little... It's kind of, it was a funny, sweet little movie. And uh, it, 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 was, uh, it was just a... I, and, it, and it was the first job that came up. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't think twice about it. You know, you know my, my... I remember... <laughs> I remember years ago, my, my father said... I can't remember the context of the conversation, but I just remember the phrase when he said... Real men don't fight. Real men pay their bills, and that's always kind of stayed with me. And I was, and whenever I've been out of work, mm-hmm. or in, you know, whenever a job's finished, right? There's, and it's a very real sensation. There's a feeling in me. There's a little voice in my head that's kind of saying, "Well, they found you out now. Mm-hmm. This is the last gig you're going to get. <laughs> someone's kind of going. Someone's going to go." Oh, there's been a terrible mistake. I'm ever so sorry. We meant Albert Molina. You know, I'm terribly sorry. You're going to have to give all the stuff back. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's a very real thing. So whenever something comes up, I mean, just the other day, my, my agent in London said, so, um, listen, do me a favor. After you finish the play, don't just take the first thing that comes along. Please take your time. Relax. Because she know, you know, she's been my agent for 35 years she knows yes. she, she knows what i'm like i, I yeah i don't like two days is, uh... <laughs> now and were you did you keep in touch with uh gary because he immediately it seems to me after kind of prick up your ears then went this sort of studio film route yeah yeah he was um you know sid and nancy well you know he'd made sid and nancy just before i think just before uh, but uh, yeah he yeah he because he, he loves movies i mean he loves movies and and he, i think he's also become a producer mm-hmm. director you know, we we haven't kept in touch. We you know, we stayed in touch for a while. We have, I haven't seen him because after you know, such an intense experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, and because we, we did a play um, after we did mm-hmm. a play together after the movie, 
Um, and so you know, but and we you know we were we were challenged. That for must a, have been you know. surreal. It was well, no, it wasn't. Well, this is this is this <laughs> the, killed you. Yeah, no, it's not. It, it wasn't at all because I think in in the kind of English context, you know, British actors because the industry is so much smaller there. Right. English actors are constantly going from film to theatre mm. to radio to television back again. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. a you know we've only got one union. It's not like you know it's not like this huge sort of big corporate industry mm. that's going on. But yeah, you know, but we've. Uh, We've stayed, we, you know, we stayed in touch for a while. You know, then, then you know, you know, life life happens, and you mm-hmm. know, one goes there different ways. So, when you did, you the, was the hardest thing you ever had to do slapping Sally Field in. Uh, well, it was the most not with my. It, daughter. it, it was the oh, most. Oh, not without my daughter. Yeah. Right. Not without my daughter. Right, right, right. It, at the time, it was so it was, bad. In yeah, it was hard. It was hard to do, but she Sally was so fantastic. She was so game for that movie. I mean, she was like. <laughs> She was so collaborative, and she mm-hmm. and I think she realised that I was feeling a little kind of bad about having to kind of knock her about, and and I was I kept and I was constantly apologising. Uh, <laughs> so I, 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 I was I was constantly I was apologising to the point where she kind of went, "Stop fucking apologising, <laughs> just do your job." <laughs> oh, Sally <laughs> So I just like. And because she was, she was all padded up. I mean, oh, un- underneath she's the tiny. I know, but she, she had the shoulder so pads, she had the knee pads, she had the hip pads. I mean, she she was she was well padded. Yes. And she said to me, "You can just you can knock seven shades of shit out of me. I'm not going to feel it. Yeah. As long as you don't hit my face, you're fine. Right. So we kind of choreographed it and we worked. And I was kind of like all namby pamby, kind of going, "Well, I'll, I'll just hit you there and I'll just hit you there." She's going, "No, go for it, go for it." And then she said. You better go for this, Fred, because I'm sure as hell going to go for you. Because I'm going to put up a fight. Because yeah. there's no way I I just lie here and take it. I'm going to put yeah. up a fight. And I went, okay, okay. So we got into it and we, we choreographed it very, very carefully, obviously, because right. nobody wants to get hurt. But so I was I'm dragging her, then I throw her on the floor, then I get on top of her and I'm slapping her, and then she's <laughs> kicking. And at the end of it, she was wearing these trainers mm-hmm. with this very distinctive pattern on the sole shoes for americans who might not know what that is shoes exactly yeah <laughs> like you know like you know sort of sneakers tennis shoes yeah, yeah like tennis shoes and you don't call them trainers over here oh how funny <laughs> and um uh and i found a footprint of hers right on my crutch <gasps> at the end of one take so i realized i didn't feel it but i realized she was really kind of oh, leg, you yeah. know, the legs akimbo we had we had a great time doing it in the end. I mean, it was a hard sh- thing to shoot. I mean, because it wasn't just that. There was another scene where I dragged oh. her around the room and it was a lot of slaps. There was a lot of tough stuff to do. But she made it, and I love Sally Field. I love her so much. She was so thoughtful and protective of not just her character mm-hmm. but also me. As a as a fellow actor, mm-hmm. she made it. She did everything she could to make those scenes possible without me. Because I think she could tell I was, I was finding it hard. I, I got to be honest. It was, I, I was finding it hard to to just you know knock her about. And I know it's only a movie, and I know you know it, it wasn't real in any kind of you know real way. But still, there was a we had to we had to find some emotional space where that would happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was fantastic. She was such a great kind of partner to, to work on those scenes. Well, those are, I mean, it's hard, me, you know, again, and especially in meeting people that you admire and 
you know, you have to hit them. <laughs> and they're filming it, you know. Yeah. It's, the, it's a, that's when you leave and you go, this is a very strange business. Well, she, she, she gave me, she, she was uh, so sweet. At the, at the end of filming, she gave me a present. And she gave, she, she gave me a watch. And on the back of the watch, she inscribed, not without you. Aww. Which I thought was really lovely. So, uh, now, so I couldn't have hit her that hard. No. Yeah. <laughs> she, Meanwhile, true. she impaired you, permanently impaired you. Now, you also told me that you met, you had a very nice meeting with Sidney Lumet, the great director, yeah. Sidney Lumet. Yeah. Well, I was doing a play in New York on Broadway, a play called Art by Yasmina Reza. Wonderful. I saw it. And uh, Alan Alder, who is one of the cast, who, great, who, who was like, our, he was like our... He was like our spiritual dad during the run Aww. of that show. He, uh, there was only three of us in the play, Alan, myself, and Victor Garber. And Alan was very much like our, our dad. He, he was so supportive and mm-hmm. caring. And, 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 he used to, and he enjoyed, he would take us out for dinners and stuff like that. And one weekend, he was heading back to his house, some, I think in the Hampton somewhere. And he was, he was, he'd been invited to a, a dinner Mm-hmm. And he had roped us in, Victor and I. So we, so we were going to have dinner with him and a whole bunch of all these people out there. And it was a very, very. It was all kind of like Broadway dinner. I mean, everybody was there, and I, and we were all we were all in different tables. And I was sat, unbelievably, I was sat in between Stanley Donan and Sidney Lumet. Pretty good. And Peter Stone, the librettist, was mm-hmm. was. Uh, in fact, I think it was his party. He was at the table as well. I mean, just, I thought, I've landed in a tub of butter here. This is like, you know, I said, I'm, and I made a conscious decision. I'm just I'm going to shut my mouth and I'm just going to listen because these people know a shitload more than I ever will. So I'm just going to listen. And I'm sitting there and, there's a, and lots of chat. It's great fun. And Sydney and Stanley, because by this time we were best friends, uh, <laughs> started talking about, we started talking about movies. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was knocked out because they 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 were very happy to talk that you know they had obviously lots of mutual friends that they right. had they were talking about films they'd made films they wanted that was the interesting thing talking about the movies they wanted to make Ooh. the movies that they never quite managed to make and what came out of this conversation was both of them were bemoaning the fact that neither of them could raise money to make a movie and this was 1998 yeah so now I think Sydney had gone on to make a film since then, mm-hmm. you know, before he passed away. But at that point in time, they were both like couldn't get arrested. And I remember just thinking, well, if you know, and, and I was just beginning to think about films as maybe, I, you know, about or, or maybe getting involved in movies other than as an actor. Mm-hmm. Just the beginnings were just beginning to kind of percolate. And I'm thinking, well, if these two can't get a movie off the ground, what the I have, what, what chance have I got? Mm-hmm. But it was the most wonderful evening, just hearing these two masters talking about movies. And what was so delightful to, for me and so kind of heartwarming was that they were talking about movies with a kind of hunger and an enthusiasm that you would normally associate with young filmmakers just starting, just getting their first break. They were talking about films with such enthusiasm and such light and energy in their eyes it was just it was it was brilliant it was just brilliant and 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 it made me it made me kind of want to tell myself off anytime I start complaining about 
things not working out or, you know, oh, you know, I didn't get that, I really wanted that part. Oh, poor me. You know, mm-hmm. that, these two giants were still still kind of climbing the mountain. You know, it, it, was, it was a great night. Is there something about, I mean, I know how important it is to be in the British theatre, but there, there, is there something in the kind of lexicon of show business of being on Broadway in a Broadway part? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no, and, there's, and, a, and a hit show. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's like, if you're, in a, if you're on Broadway and you're in a hit show, <laughs> New York opens up. <laughs> I, I, if I may be, a, if, I, if I may be a little, uh, a little sort of uh, crude, please. Uh, this is what I was told by uh, a New York actor who said to me, "Man, you're in a hit show on Broadway. New York opens up like a beautiful vagina. <laughs> you're in a flop. It shuts up like a duck's ass." <laughs> <laughs> <That's so funny. laughs> and I just remember thinking, you know. It's kind of prosaic, but yeah, it's kind of true. It's kind of true, and and I, you know, I, I never forget when um, when we when we were doing art. My daughter, who lives in London, she was, I don't know how old was she then. Let's work it out. She, she was she would have been like seventeen, eighteen. Mm-hmm. She came she came to she came over to New York with her mum and stayed at the apartment where I was that I was renting. She came to see the show, and we went out for dinner a couple of times. And both times we went out to dinner, she was only there for about five days, both times we went out, we would arrive at the restaurant and the maitre d' or, would say, good evening, Mr Molina, welcome, uh, your table's this way. And my do- both times my daughter said, have you been here before? <laughs> and both times I had to say, no, I've never been, it's my first time. <laughs> and that's what happens in New York. If you're in a hit, that's what happens. This, like the whole city kind of, the whole, because everything is interdependent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hit shows generate revenue for the restaurants, for the mm. stores, for everybody. Hotels, yeah. So there's a, you know, it's a kind of very integrated economy in that mm-hmm. way, which isn't quite the same thing in London. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in London you can be in a hit show and it doesn't really, ha- I mean, because there isn't the same, the community isn't locked in the same you know, whatever it is, 17 square miles of, of, of uh, Manhattan. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what makes New York so unique. Right. Is, the, is the, tl- the tightness of that community and the fact that, you know, you're on 45th Street in a play, everybody, all the, all the businesses and commercial, you know, entities around there are right. kind of a part of your success. Mm-hmm. And, you know... And it's uh, so that makes it a unique place in that way. So I just want to oh, interrupt sure. because we're getting close on time. But oh, I did just check no. today's a holiday. That's right. It's President's Day, correct? Yeah. So we don't have to worry about parking. Oh, <laughs> oh, good. Oh, there you go. So we can go That's... a little longer if you're sure, okay sure, with sure. it. So, so, sure. uh, yeah. So I just wanted to interject that. I would keep going. I, I'm curious about when you when you got the play art and you open up and part part of the. Uh, uh, you know, your character has these kind of show-stopping, you know, comic monologues. And I'm curious that when you open the play, is that both thrilling but also a trap, you know, of, well, oh, I'm going to kill. Oh, this is going to yeah, be Yeah, well, the thing great, is, it, yeah, you know? it's both. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's, it's both. It can, be, it, it can be very exciting in the terms of you, you get a real chance to let your character sort of, you know, when, when your character's talking, if he or she has the big speech, then that's a need that your character has that mm-hmm. no other character has at that moment. Uh, and so th- there's something wonderful about being able to reveal whatever it is that's happening there. 
it can be a bit daunting in terms of learning it. It can be a bit daunting in terms of keeping it interesting, not playing not playing it as a monologue. You know, in, in art, um, Ivan has, has that big, it's like a five-page monologue, yeah. which has no punctuation. If you if you look at the you look at the yeah, printed yeah it's, it's show stopping yeah. and and uh, when we were <laughs> when we were rehearsing uh, Yasmina uh, Reza the, the the author was was in with us for for a, a week or so and I happened to refer to the speech as a monologue and she said she said she's French you know, as you know French she said oh no 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 is not uh, a monologue is a dialogue. But no one else is speaking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, I remember, and I remember thinking, what does that mean? But I realised, I knew, I realised exactly what she meant, that she was, she was encouraging me not to approach it like a monologue. Yes. That at any moment now, someone else might just kind of say, well, you know, yes. might say something. And, you know, and I think she was wary of of uh, that the trap as you that you're you're talking about where you can get into this trap. Oh, here comes here comes the big speech. Yeah, and you kind of like prepare yourself and launch. You know, and of course that if 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 that happens too many times, then it ceases to be part of the play. It becomes like you know your yes your aria, and it's you know. a great play. I'm just going to mention very briefly. It's about two men who are a man, well, friendship that's torn apart by one man buying a painting. That's so right, yeah. And the third friend trying to kind of keep the peace between them. Yeah, yeah. and it can be you can play it in any era. Which yeah, I think absolutely. Is great about it. Absolutely. I saw a revival of it yeah. recently. Yeah, and the play's and been uh, the play's been done constantly because it's so simple. One set, you know, three actors. It's uh, it yeah. It's and it, and it's it could apply. And in fact, I think. I think there's been um, a female version done uh-huh. where there's been a few little rewrites, a couple right. of little adjustments, you know, because there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of off stage characters mentioned, like right. Ivan's Ivan's parents yes. and his stepmother, mm-hmm. who creates all the problem at the wed- mm-hmm. the proposed wedding. There's his bride to be. There's friends and people, you know, uh, exes that are mentioned, and they just change that. They just regendered right. those characters that are mentioned, and it apparently worked really well. So we ha- only have a little bit of time left, so I want to get into uh, Long Day's Journey uh, into Night, which you're doing at the Geffen. That's and right. Congratulations on thank that. Thank you. Tamara has seen yes, it. And you're it brilliant. Amazing. I have not seen it yet. Thank but, you. Thank you. But we'll see it. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm going to compare. I've, I saw the Jack Lemon version on Broadway. Yes, that yes. Was, uh, that was very interesting. And I think I saw Jason Robards. In the movie version with Ralph Richardson yes. and Catherine Hepburn. Yes. yes, yes. I've seen that kind of variety of, of O'Neill. But yeah. uh, how did you get involved with this play? Well, I, I, it started with a kind of uh, a working friendship with um, Jane Kaczmarek, mm-hmm. who is playing Mary Tyrone. And she and I met doing a radio production of View from the Bridge for the BBC. Mm-hmm. And we just got on really well. And I remember saying to her, you know, I'd like to, to work with you again. I, you know, I thought, I've, I've really enjoyed this. And then we ended up doing two two radio productions. And then last summer, we were at the Williamstown Theatre Festival in Massachusetts. And we did a, a play there, uh, a new play. And it was at that point where we started talking about doing something this year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we were throwing titles to each other and saying, well, what about this play? Yeah, OK. What about that play? Yeah, maybe. 
And we kept circling round and round. And eventually I said, look, there's only one play, really. It's a long day's journey. I mean, we've just got to do it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the big, it's the 300-pound gorilla in the room we're ignoring. <laughs> yeah. And then there was the whole issue with rights because there was a production about to start in New York, which is mm-hmm. one that Jessica Lange did with uh, Gabriel Byrne and, right. and Michael Shannon and uh, John Gallagher. And, and, and so it was... Uh, it wasn't uh, possible to do it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Geffen got the rights to do it under the understanding, with the understanding that the the New York production had to close first. So we had to wait till that had its run. Um, so it was really just, uh, it came out of a sort of collaborative, creative conversation. And and then uh, our director came on board and, and we just started work on it. And, and it's been uh, it's been a really... Fantastic experience. We've had, you know, it's a tough play to put on. Yes. Uh, and it's a hard play in the sense of, you know, it's a long play. It's a play that, uh, you know, audiences aren't so used to seeing a play this long these mm-hmm. days. You know, a 90-minute play without an interval is kind of like the norm now, it seems to be. Here's, you've got a play that's got an interval, but it's got a running time of three hours and 20 minutes. Uh, inclu- that's including the interval. And and it's uh, or the intermission, <laughs> as you like to say here. Uh, and it's uh, so it's a, it's it's but it's a big big family mm. drama, and it, it and it and hopefully it takes you somewhere, you know. And and it's a beautiful writing, and these are great roles, and you know I'm I'm 63 now, and I've just hit. I'm now part of a generation where there's some really great roles for men my age in in the classical repertoire mm-hmm. you know in in so you know you you'll, you might see me doing quite a few revivals for, oh. for a while because you know most most young playwrights are writing for their generation as right. as it you know as it should be and but but in the classical repertoire there's there's some great roles for for older actors this was a play that O'Neill had put aside he said it could only be oh. played after his death that's right and and his uh, yeah and and i think uh and i think partly because it was so it's so autobiographical yeah um and lots of productions have tried to eke out that 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 fact that you know and, and in, in fact in our production we there's a little stylistic thing that happens that kind of makes it clear that there is a sort of autobiographical link between eugene o'neill and the family that mm-hmm. are in the play um and other productions have really got rid of all of that. Other productions have been very kind of skeletal in terms of cutting the play. Uh, the film versions were always cut down to right. two hours, two hours and a bit. Um, but there's been so there's been a lot of versions of mm-hmm. this play. And uh, Jason Robards, oddly enough, that you saw in he played he played um, ja- uh, Jamie, the older son, right. in one with Ralph Richardson. And then years later, he played the father in a production. Um, and uh, you know he, he's uh, he was a big O'Neill exponent. Yes, Jason he Robards, and his wife know. Colleen Dewhurst. I think I saw them in Dewar Wilderness. Yeah, yeah. They they were they big big uh, you know big big sort of exponents of, of Eugene O'Neill. And are there any? It's about family dynamics, and obviously very sad. And uh, anything from your own um, family that you draw upon, because it's this is a guy who's larger than life character. Yeah, He's yeah. an actor. Oh yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot in there, and I think it's dense. And, and it's not to do with my particular family. I think anybody playing this role or be getting involved in a play like this will find resonances in their own families because you know i i i subscribe to the uh, to the theory that 
we're all fucked up. <laughs> and it, and the difference is just in the grade, just in the level of fucked upness. Yes. You know, and uh, that you know that ultimately anyone and most people, certainly people who are creative, I, and I really believe this. I think. If, are usually come from some kind of screwed up family background. There's some dynamic in there that's kind of a bit off kilter, and it's what gives is what gives creative people the need to be creative. It's like, I mean, I always tell people, becoming an actor or a writer or a or an artist of any kind, isn't because you've got something else to offer. Mm-hmm. It's some kind of genetic flaw. You've got something missing, and your creativity is an attempt to bridge that gap to fill that gap you know so we're not doing it because we've got something special right we're doing it because we're actually missing something i agree i agree it's like trying to put pieces together of something that doesn't make make sense and nothing like doing a play is there anything in doing the play that has made you discover because each night is different and some nights well i'll I'll, I'll be honest with you i mean there's no you know as 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 james says in the play what's the use of false pride and pretense (laughs) this play doing this play has actually given me the permission to forgive my dad for a lot of crap Mm -hmm. and not because not not because it was really really awful stuff really but it just gave it's just given me the permission to kind of go you know what it's okay because he was human, you know, and and uh, and it and that is in itself is like worth the price of admission. That in itself is worth doing anything, you know, and uh, and I hope one day, you know, my daughter's a photographer. I hope one day, in her creativity, she'll turn around one day and say, "Yeah, you know what, Dad, I can forgive you." Ah, well. Alfred Molina, it's been a joy. Please come back. I will, with pleasure, anytime. We'll have our tea and scones. Yes. They gave me scones we and did. they gave me lemon curd. Yes, it's we an did. honor. For all, you, for all you lemon curd fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for all your wonderful oh, it's work. A pleasure. Over oh, it's been, been fun. amazing. You can find Alfred on Twitter at Official Molina. Thank you, Alfred, so much. You can buy Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, on Amazon, also at bookstores. It's out in paperback now. Do buy the book. You're going to learn so much about Ileana. It's a fascinating oh. read. Also, like our page on Facebook. Check out our website, ilianaspodcast.com. Yes, and as I always say, everyone's life is a movie. I believe everyone's life is a movie. I agree with With you. a beginning, a middle, and an end. I agree I think with I'm you. I'm in the middle. We're in the middle. Let's hope we're all in uh, the middle. <laughs> Sadly, oh, you know, you know, you know, you know the. Oh, it remind me a wonderful joke. You know, you know the five stages of an actor's career. No, <laughs> who's Alfred Molina? What's Alfred Molina's availability? I must have Alfred Molina. Get me a young Alfred Molina. Whatever happened to Alfred Molina? <laughs> on, on that note, have a great day, everyone. Thanks, Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers, Cheerio, Cheerio. <laughs> From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.